stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. show. I was off for the last couple of weeks. There were rebroadcasts on. Um, and this is the first live show in, I don't know, three or four weeks. Um, where was I? I was in Maine, in Maine, on a kind of a family celebration vacation. I've gone to Maine with my wife. Her family lives up there for maybe the last, more than the last 25 years. And um, what is it like in Maine? Well, this is semi-rural, small-town Maine. Absolutely beautiful. Have you ever been up there? Um, and it's on the coast. And Maine has this long coastline where there are bays and inlets, and there's the ocean and the fog and lobster fishermen and sailing. And 
then uh, no more than a mile or two away, uh, three, four miles, uh, it, uh, the land rises and goes straight up into, you know, it's a uh, plateau a little bit, and then it goes straight up into the mountains. So it's an extraordinary place. I mean, and absolutely beautiful. And um, um, let's see, it was about a week ago Thursday, a week ago Thursday that I came back. I was, um, uh, it was an eight-hour trip. And there was uh, an, an incident that we were thinking about moving up there because <laughs> it's so beautiful. And um, I've been in this city for a long, long time. And I never really enjoyed Manhattan too much. I've been here for like 30 years. Uh, and it's crazier and crazier in Manhattan. Noisier and more crowded and just sort of, there's no rules or laws here anymore. And totally nuts. And you go up to Maine for a little while, but you have to watch out. It's... Um, it's, it can be a, an illusion, a delusion almost. You know, you're up there on vacation. You don't have that many responsibilities. Not that I'm overloaded with them down here, but somehow just being in the city, just going from one place to another in Manhattan feels like <laughs> a gigantic responsibility just to keep your sanity to get from one place to another. But um, <clears throat> you're up there, and yeah, you're up there on vacation. You're in this beautiful little town, which is uh, sort of a mix of different classes, um, Lower, middle, upper middle, even some upper class. A lot of people go to this town in Midcoast, Maine, place I went, uh, for vacations. There's, um, <clears throat> there's a very, very rich sort of yachting club where people who uh, have these gigantic seagoing yachts park their yachts. On the other hand, there are people there who are, you know, there's a lot of unemployment in Maine, tremendous amount of poverty and unemployment in Maine. And there are people who are in this town who... Um, who are retired, they're not doing too well, you know, they're living on, um, you know, they, they exist on Social Security and Medicaid. Of course, um, except for um, a fairly small or relatively small for this state, liberal um, enclave in this town, right around in the area where this town is, um, it's uh, very much Trump country up there. It's Trump-Pence country. You could see the signs everywhere and people on their bumpers, you know, on their car and truck bumpers. But um, all in all, it's kind of a beautiful place. You look out the window, whatever it is where you're staying, and we stayed in a small little apartment <clears throat> that we were borrowing from somebody. And you look out the window, and uh, you see vast amounts of blue sky. You inhale clean air, or relatively clean air. You never know what it's like, but it's clean, a lot cleaner than where we live here. And... Um, the wind's in the trees. Sometimes there's fog in the morning. That's part of Maine. But the wind is blowing in the trees. And basically, that's what you hear, the wind in the, in the, uh, in the leaves, stirring the leaves in the trees. Uh, you know, you hear uh, cars driving on some roads, maybe off, off a little bit in the distance, and some trucks. <clears throat> Quiet, peaceful. So what happened last Thursday was, it's a long trip. We, we went from Maine. It's an eight-hour trip. Uh, and by train, there was an extra train too. We we took a train from this small, the, a car from this small town in Maine, got off in New Haven. On this is on the way back to the city, and um, then took to New Haven, uh, you know, the um, Metro North, and arrived last Thursday <clears throat> at commuting time in Grand Central Station in the summer in New York City, in Manhattan. <laughs> a scene, a sensory scene from hell, as if. A Bosch painting had become alive, and you were in it. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I mean, and uh, the switch from leaving that very morning, from leaving that very morning from this quiet, 
green, peaceful place where people aren't staring into their phones or screaming into their phones and banging into you. And some people aren't lying on the streets. There's poverty up there. There's poverty up in Maine. But people aren't actually lying, these poor people, lying on the streets um, like uh, two on every block and uh, falling down and people uh, just actually just sort of have given up. It's a whole different world. And you arrive there in, in, in Grand Central and it's nuts. Anyhow, this trip to Maine, like I mentioned before, was um, part vacation and part very big family event for my wife. And um, But like I say, the, it, it's the driving. It's the trip. When I, as I get older and older and older, the traveling is the hard thing to do. Used to be, uh, and I suppose there are people my age, and I know there are people my age who are much more curious still about their lives uh, and more lively than I am. I mean, you know, I have gotten rigid and crotchety to the uh, nth degree. But it's hard for me to switch places and travel around, take long trips, hard to take long trips. And this trip, like I say, was like anywhere from 8 to 10 hours on the way up even in the car. And I made some uh, stops for, you know, bathroom and at the malls or the uh, the little stops on the highways, the rest stops. And... Um, it was hard driving up because I can't drive. I haven't been able to drive for about 15 years for various medical conditions. And so that makes it longer and harder. It's easier to be in the driver's seat. You know, you give you give you a sense of control. You can pull over. You can go whatever speed you want. You know. But otherwise, if you're, um, you know, in the passenger seat, you're completely dependent. And you're at the mercy of someone else's pace and perspective on the trip. And... Um, up in Maine, I realize when I'm up there, of course, and this is how I grew up out sort of near, right on the edge of the city, but really sort of partially on Long Island. When I got up there and when you, when you drive around up there, and we had a, a rented car that we drove around on the country roads and visiting my wife's relatives. When you get up there, it's car land, like most of the country is car land. I don't know what the ratio is of uh, population, uh, urban to rural or urban to small town. I'm sure there's many more people living in cities than there used to be. But it's car land, you know? You can't, you can't really, there's no subways and there's hardly any commuter buses up there, although there have to be some, I didn't see any. And um, everybody had a car or a truck. Everybody, you have to have a car or a truck. It's the only way you could do anything. It's the only way you could go to work, shop, go out to eat, uh, see doctors, visit anybody, and, uh, you know, you travel on the country roads or on the two-lane highways up there. And there's car repair. I remember this from when I was a kid. Car repair shops, auto body shops, custom fittings, painting, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's so long since I've owned a car or even driven one. And this car culture, it's, it's one I remember uh, very fondly in a way, uh, mostly fondly, from my childhood. Um, where I lived... Uh, as I've mentioned many times, on the edge of New York City, out in Queens. If you wanted to get into the city itself, uh, and people who lived out there called it the city. <laughs> we, we were in the suburbs, but it was, you know, it was part of Queens. But if you want to go into the city, and a lot of people, a lot of men did, to go to work. They were working in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And uh, you took the bus and you took the subway. Although these days in New York, you're risking your life or maybe not even able to get anywhere if you're getting on a subway. But uh, that's, a, so that's another whole problem. Um, but that was the life. Most of the men went, this is like in the 50s and back in the 60s, most of the men went to work that way. They got on a bus, if they lived far enough away from a subway stop, uh, or maybe they drove their car, maybe they drove their car and parked it if they were far out in the, in the edge of the, some borough, 
and uh, got the last stop on the line, took that subway line into the city, or they were on buses that went into the city. And um, sometimes people drove their cars in my neighborhood um, uh, on the week. They actually used their cars on the weekends, basically. And to go on it, what they do is like a family trip. Because this is a lower middle class neighborhood. And uh, people would drive their cars into the city. They would go to the museum or the Bronx Zoo or, you know, the American Museum of Natural History or something. Uh, then a, That's a family outing, right? The American family in their car. And this is an institution that goes way back to the 20s and right up to this minute. The essential institution is America and its cars. Now, of course, it's the world and the Internet and various devices. But in those days... The technological connection, what, uh, what, what you and the technological world had in common, what everybody in the country did, except, of course, if you were too poor to afford a car or to be able to even use one. But it was the car, America and the car. So, yeah, going into the city. If you want to go anywhere east from where I lived, out to Long Island, um, <clears throat> you, had to, uh, you had to take the car. I mean, there was the Long Island Railroad and there were some buses. But basically, it was car country there. Um, you know, um, cars and me, cars and me. I remember cars. I mean, it's a, I, mean, I don't know how many people listening to me uh, grew up completely in the city or have stayed in the city and don't have a car, whatever city you're in. Um, but uh, most people probably who are listening to me, one way or another, sometime in their life, have had a car or they still have a car. And um, when I was a kid in the 50s and the early 60s, most of the families in my neighborhood had cars, but they were used cars. People, hardly anybody in my neighborhood could afford a new car. People bought used cars. There were many, many used car lots. <laughs> and, you know, the, you've, seen, you've seen stories and heard stories about used cars, and maybe you've had experience buying used cars in your life. Um, but, um, you know, the, you had to look for all the ways they cheated you, everybody in uh, you know, how did, they, how did they fix the interior or the exterior or the engine or the, the drivetrain or whatever to get away with it? But still in my neighborhood, like I say, it was rare to see a new car. And uh, if somebody had a new car, it was definitely the subject of admiration and maybe some envy, really, too. Um, the street I lived on was very quiet. Not too many cars came down the street day or night, usually a few more on weekends. Uh, but uh, you wouldn't see more than one car during a week weekday, you wouldn't, might not see one, two, three cars an hour. I mean, that's how sort of quiet this neighborhood was. And also how little, I mean, it was out of the way. So people weren't using, uh, I didn't live on a main street. I lived on a sort of a side street, a small avenue. And people didn't use this very much to go anywhere. So you didn't see that many cars. Also in my neighborhood, people didn't use their cars, like I said, because um, the gasoline was expensive for them or repairs. So they just didn't use it. Gasoline was 23 cents a gallon then. <laughs> 23 cents a gallon. And um, really, the family car was only used on a weekend. Um, this is uh, not a suburb. When I say suburb, this is not a madman suburb, right? This is not where, you know, the man has um, a Cadillac or a Pontiac or an Oldsmobile, drives to the station and gets the railroad into the, into the city to work at his ad job or some other, you know, lawyer or business job. And the wife stays home with the, the suburban, um, you know, with the uh, station wagon with the kids. This is just, uh, like I say, you know, um, lower middle class place. Um, some people, we had these tiny little houses and little lawns. And some people had a dirt driveway for which they sacrificed some small portion 
of the front lawn, and they pulled their cars up to park, and the rest, uh, rest of us all parked at the curb. A big deal right across from us was um, there were blocks of adjoining red brick houses, and the really big selling point there was that they had a garage. There were these alleys that ran up and down between uh, the streets and uh, these uh, beat-up old alleys. And there were these um, old wooden garages, and they must have been built in the 20s and 30s. But to have a garage was such a big deal. (laughs) It was such a big deal. But the rest of the people who lived on the streets and the avenues, mostly um, um, where I was, pulled the car up, uh, and they wanted if they wanted to wax it or clean it, they pulled it up and they used the garden hose. You know, they took out the garden hose on the weekends or a long summer evening, and um, uh, <clears throat> they didn't. And or they parked at the curb if they didn't want to ruin what little lawn they had. And they ran the hose from the side of the house out across the lawn to the car, or over to the car in the driveway, and um, cleaned the car. And it was just a, a ritual. It was a ritual, and it was a, and you know in those days it was a masculine ritual. Um, there were upper, you know, there were middle class and upper middle class neighborhoods out on Long Island where girls bought cars, drove cars, or you know, cleaned their own cars. But where I lived, it was still sort of, um, um, it was a masculine world. Cars, uh, women, uh, women got in the passenger seat, and that was that. But the men would uh, clean their car on the weekend or in the evenings. It was nice and. Um, clean everything up, use maybe uh, a vacuum that they would bring out with an extension cord and uh, clean the car, you know, like clean the car lovingly, absolutely lovingly, because this was the great possession. You had your house. Well, that was the great possession, the greatest one of all. But then there was the car. This is what made you a success. This is what made you a grown-up. This is how it was. And uh, people took care of their cars. They were tremendous objects of uh, veneration. I mean, if there's the slightest dent... You know, it was attended to. If anything wasn't working right, a lot of the guys um, were able to fix their cars somewhat. I mean, there were garages, obviously, in my neighborhood, uh, you know, gas stations that repaired cars. But uh, a lot of the guys could, you know, do some basic repairs on their cars. And then they put the wax on, and they put the wax on this beautiful, beautiful waxy shine. And these are, like I say, a lot of these were used cars. Most of these were used cars. But they kept them in incredible condition, (laughs) incredible condition, because this was them. There was the house, which they worked on all the time and kept in perfect condition as best they could. And then there was the car, and that was the way it was. And when people um, used uh, you know, the hose water to water their car, it ran um, into the gutter and ran down the street and uh, down to the sewer grating, which was about a block away. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. for, And we'd sort of stand around when we were really little and watch the guys do it. And sometimes we would help them when we got older. Um, there weren't too many different kinds of cars back then. There was no, absolutely no, there was no German or Japanese cars, that's for sure. <laughs> no German or Japanese cars. Too soon after World War II for that. It would, in fact, it would have been considered un-American, anti-American and insulting to drive one of those cars. I don't know when they became available. When did uh, German cars, Volkswagens, became available in the 60s? And people started to buy Volkswagens in the 60s. Uh, but still, it was considered by an older generation, uh, guys who had um, families, you know, who had been through the Depression and World War II. You just, you couldn't own a German car. And Japanese cars, when did they come in? Maybe in the 70s, starting in the 70s, really. 
But uh, nobody in my neighborhood would own one of those cars. Um, and, you know, you really, they, even, and if they existed, they weren't available where I was. They weren't available. Um, there were no foreign cars at all, actually. Forget about Japanese and German. There was just no foreign cars. Uh, they were either too expensive or too hard to maintain. And there was a suspicion about anything foreign. I mean, could it possibly as, be as good as an honest American-made car? Could it possibly? Because anything that was made in America, we knew, was just better than anything that was made anywhere else. Actually, that may have been true. <laughs> in many cases, it may have been true. But we assumed that anything that was made in our country was just better and worked smarter than anything else uh, in, in the world. And a foreign car, you know how shifty foreigners could be? You know how shifty they could be? You don't want to get an honest American car. There was one guy in my neighborhood, one guy in my neighborhood who had a beat-up used Mercedes. I remember this guy. But he was considered a total oddball anyhow. I mean, it was, it was like I say, un-American to buy or drive a foreign car. Uh, cars... Um, in America, and it was all the same thing. It was power and patriotism and dominance. What's it called now? Triumphalism, right? Uh, American exceptionalism. We and our technology um, beat the Germans and the Japanese. And yeah, our soldiers. Yeah, but it was our technology too. It was our technology. Um, I remember this this great TV series uh, about World War II called Band of Brothers. Did you see that? Uh, the Germans during World War II uh, had a lot of technological improvements, but still, in the end, uh, they uh, were relying uh, a lot, and to their detriment, on uh, mules and horses for transport, transporting ammunition, transporting, um, transporting um, you know, food. And um, there was one scene uh, near the end of the war um, where a bunch of Americans are on a truck, um, you know, a huge General Motors transport truck. And, um, and they're on the truck, and uh, they're driving into uh, parts of Austria, you know, where they were sort of taking, this is at the very end of the war. And passing the other way was this long line of defeated, captured German soldiers marching along, marching along. And one of the guys who had been through all this, you know, hell that was World War II when the Americans uh, stood up and started yelling at the Germans. He started yelling at the Germans. He says, uh, what was, what's wrong with you people? What were you thinking? Look, at the, you could never have won. I mean, and he points to the truck. He says, uh, say hello to Ford. Say hello to General Motors. What were you thinking? <laughs> this whole idea of America and uh, American dominance and technology and material, uh, material uh, goods and material power. It's all part of progress, science, technology. You know, power, power steering, America, power steering, automatic transmission, power windows, power, 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 air conditioning, all great things, all great things. If you've ever driven a car without those, which I have way back in the day, bigger engines, more horsepower. And the Europeans had these dinky little cars, no power or anything. How could that be? How could that add up to anything? This is America. America, everything was bigger and better. It's always been bigger and better. Just the way now... Everything is faster. You know, the whole thing is faster. You look at TV or you, you get ads for things on the Internet. They're always telling you how much faster everything is. I mean, things are way too fast for me, but on the other hand, I'm an old guy. But in those days, yeah, and for a long time, whatever was bigger was better in America. Bigger and newer was better. 
USA in your Chevrolet. America is asking you to call. Drive your Chevrolet through the USA. America's the greatest land of all. On a highway or a road along a levee. Performance is sweeter. Nothing can beat her. Life is completer in a Chevy. So make a date today to see the USA. See it in your Chevrolet. Traveling east, traveling west, wherever you go, Chevy service is best. Southward or north, near place or far, there's a Chevrolet dealer for your Chevrolet car. See the USA in your Chevrolet, the Rockies way out west are calling you. Drive your Chevrolet through the USA, where fields of golden wheat pass and review. Whether traveling light or with a load that's heavy. Performance is sweeter, nothing can beat her. Life is completer in a Chevy. So make a date today to see the USA and see it in your Chevrolet. Um, I've had another car commercial queued up, but uh, can, can we go to that? Yeah. Fine. Yes, I'd love to. Thanks, Jean. I'll be there. Two o'clock. Goodbye. You know, three weeks ago, I couldn't have accepted that invitation. Like so many people these days, we live in the suburbs, and Dave needs the car every day for business. When he was gone, I was practically a prisoner in my own home. I couldn't get out to see my friends, couldn't take part in PTA activities. I couldn't even shop when I wanted to. I had to wait till Thursday night after Dave brought the car home. But that's all changed now. Three weeks ago, we bought another Ford. The new, low-priced, custom-line Victoria. Isn't it stunning? Dave has it all to himself. And I now have the ranch wagon all to myself. It's a whole new way of life. Now I'm free to go anywhere, do anything, see anybody anytime I want to. It's only good common sense. Why be stuck with one expensive car when you can enjoy all the fun and freedom of two fine Fords? Today, more and more families are finding out how easy it is to become two Ford families. You can choose from 20 different models, colors galore, and each available with Thunderbird power, with styling inspired by the famous Ford Thunderbird, and each with the extra protection of Ford's lifeguard design. See your Ford dealers soon. Yeah, see your Ford, see your Ford dealer if you robbed a bank. <laughs> you could afford two cars. I don't know what world was that. But that's, you were overwhelmed by this stuff. When you watch TV, no matter what neighborhood you lived in, right? I mean, it's like the Internet now. If you get on the Internet, uh, you're going to see stuff for sale you couldn't possibly afford. And then you strive your whole life to try to afford it, right? But uh, in those days, if you read Life magazine... And uh, you watch TV, uh, what you saw was all this stuff that you could, uh, if you worked really hard and God loved you, you know, and you were good, uh, you could have two cars one day and you could move up to even a better suburb. Progress, progress, progress. Um, and, uh, but still, back in my neighborhood, you knew that when you finally did get a car, it was going to be, if you were lucky enough to be able to have one when you were finally, when you graduated from high school, maybe you were going to college, uh, it was going to be uh, a used car for sure. Um, and uh, back in those days, uh, there was an effort made by American car manufacturers 
to have their cars be distinguishable from other makes. And that was part of, uh, I don't know, the American way of life, which was that you would like uh, be individualistic and you would be free not to have to be just like everybody else. I mean, there was something also European about that, that kind of like ant-like fascism, you know? Although in this country, conformity was a gigantic thing uh, in certain ways, uh, in many ways, uh, people tended to ignore that. And they imagine, this is the, uh, the uh, disconnect, between understanding the American culture and history and what things were really like, Americans assumed that uh, everything they did was unique and individual to themselves, and they were sold that way, too. You can get your special car. This is for you. This is my car. This is your car. You know, this, this, is, this is different than everything else. That was, that's what makes it better. But, um, but uh, you know, really the conformity was crushing. So there's a, there's a tremendous um, uh, contradiction and disconnect. But uh, in those days, American man- car manufacturers, they really did try to make their cars distinguishable from, um, from other cars. Uh, but it seems like quite a while now that cars, and this is from my non-car-owning, non-car-driving perspective, you understand, they seem to all look alike. Uh, I see, because I watch a lot of baseball on TV, endless, of course, excruciating car commercials. Is there anything more boring than a car commercial? Nothing. Nothing is more boring than a car commercial. And as far as I'm concerned, nothing is more boring than car chases in movies, too. But uh, this whole idea, it's, but it's America. It's cars. It's cars. A new car, the brand new car. Uh, but they all look the same. And I think, uh, why was that? Is it because, why did all cars look the same now when they didn't used to look the same uh, back in the day? I don't know. It probably simply has to do with aerodynamics, right? I mean, since the 50s and 60s, uh, a good deal has been learned about the way cars should be designed, uh, the way a car holds the road, the way it drives, the way the air flows up, down, and around it when it's mobile. Uh, But in my day, it was the era of chrome and tail fins. I don't know how many of you, you would have to be way into your 60s or maybe into your 70s to to remember these cars in actuality, unless you saw a a vintage car on the road or in a museum or something on, on YouTube. But uh, it was all gigantic cars. Like I say, bigger was always better. Huge cars. There were some sport models uh, that the Americans made, but um, basically it was always year after year after year. These large monster cars, which proved power and dominance. This is what America was all about. We dropped the bomb. We didn't drop, we didn't drop a cherry bomb on the Japanese. We dropped the atomic bomb. You know, bigger and better. And uh, so this was the era of, like, chrome. There was, like, I don't know, 500 pounds of chrome on top of a, uh, a one-ton car. <laughs> and tail fins, huge tail fins, and gigantic bumpers that came, chrome bumpers that came uh, sticking out uh, in the front. The more stuff on the car, the flashier it was, the more, uh, the more excessive it was, the better. Uh, aerodynamics probably existed then, but... Uh, People wanted their cars to look big and strong, and that was it. Being cool and subdued, uh, except for some of the sports cars, was for a later time. Uh, one thing we used to do as little kids was uh, this car world that we lived in, America and in the little suburbs, was that we sat on the front lawn or on the curb to see if we could predict the make and model of a car that we could see coming from a couple of blocks away. And we you know, make bets. Uh, and um, over a period of half an hour, Let's say maybe you would see who was the winner in terms of uh, the number of Fords or Chevys or Plymouths. There were other companies, 
But those three and their various uh, models were about 90% of what rolled rolled by. In my town and in a lot of other places, uh, especially in cities, Jewish guys would not ever buy a Ford. And this is back, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And this lingered into the 70s for people and to other generations, too. They would not buy a Ford because Henry Ford was, back in the teens and 20s of the 20th century, um, an incredible anti-Semite. Terrible anti-Semite. He, he published a newspaper called the Dearborn Independent, and uh, it was blatantly anti-Semitic, as was uh, Henry Ford. Uh, and I say, you know, so in my neighborhood, no, no man would buy a Ford. Basically, they bought Chevys and then some Plymouths. There were other ones. There were um, Studebakers. There were Packards. All these things have gone out of business for a long time now. Cars, 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 cars. Cars, uh, we had our bikes, right? It was a big thing to have a bike when you're... 9, 10, 11, to have a bike, to save up, to buy a bike, to get a brand new Schwinn or some other bike. It was the thing. That's what you had. That was, that's what made, gave you freedom. That's what gave you an identity to help give you an identity is having this bike. And you pay a lot of attention to it. You make sure that it was greased and oiled and you shined up your bike. And if anything went wrong with it, you got it repaired. And you filled the tires with air. And you, that was the big thing. But, you know, this is how it is. You get to be 14 or 15, and the great yearning, at least for boys, the ultimate goal uh, was, um, was to get a car. You weren't going to get a car for years, uh, but that's when you started to really, you know, that's when you started to really get into it. That's when the great yearning started. And you didn't just look at cars as kind of um, interesting or objects, uh, interesting objects, but um, you looked at them as something that would make you powerful. I mean, a car was one thing, and you could fly around and have a sense of freedom, terrific freedom when you were a kid. But to have a car, that's when you had real power. And for a boy, that's partially when you would become a man. You know, um, when uh, a bar in mitzvah occurs at the age of 13 for a Jewish boy, it says, you know, like, on this day you become a man. Well, that's sort of antiquated. It goes back to almost biblical times. No 13-year-old American boy is, has become a man. In fact, uh, most grown American men are still boys. Look at um, President Tweet. You know, another whole subject you don't want to get into. But like I say, by the time you're 15 or 16, back in those days, and I don't know how it is now, probably, maybe it's still this way in the suburbs or in rural areas, the great yearning, at least, again, from a boy's perspective, along, of course, with the constant desire to have sex with girls, was to, uh, was to have a car. And you were saving up money, you were working, you were doing odd jobs, you were mowing lawns, you were, uh, you were shoveling snow. You did whatever you had to do, and you saved up every penny because you knew you were going to buy the used car. And, um, uh, you know, you had your fantasies. Like I say, if you read Life magazine, and everybody read Life magazine back in those days, or if you looked at TV and, uh, in the 50s, uh, you would see all these ads. Or you looked at the TV shows like Father Knows Best and these other shows. There were suburbs. Everybody uh, had these big cars or these beautiful cars. So sometimes they had two cars. But uh, you live where I lived and, you know, it would be only be a daydream. You're not going to get a Lincoln or a Cadillac or a Mercury or a Pontiac or an Oldsmobile. N- never. No way. Uh, it was going to be a used car or no car at all. And um, my, uh, my uncle surprised everybody once. And my uncle, who was very hardworking and very unassuming, he had saved up money. I don't know how he was able to do that. He saved up money, and he bought a, uh, a new Corvair. And there is no such thing. I don't think there is such a thing as a Corvair anymore. But a Corvair was a tiny little car that uh, Chevrolet built, 
And there was a car that became famous that made Ralph Nader famous. Uh, he published uh, something and he testified before Congress, unsafe at any speed. This car was really dangerous to drive. I mean, it looked like a, it was advertised as a quiet little family sports car, you know, a little economy car, and it was. But they had the engine in the back and nothing in the front. If this car so much as tapped another car, especially a big American car, or even sniffed at a tree, the whole car would be crumpled and everybody in it. So um, anyhow, but that my uncle bought this because it was advertised. My uncle was a very cautious. I mean, he had been in World War II. He had seen a lot of horrible shit. He had been in a lot of bad places, and he had a lot of bad things happen to him in his life. And he didn't want, like a lot of guys who came back from the war, he just wanted peace and quiet. He did not want trouble. This is the era of the 50s when everybody said, don't make trouble. Let's have everything be calm and neat, and let's everything be predictable. It just came from the Depression and World War II. They didn't want to hear about it. My uncle, being a very quiet, unassuming um, sort of humble guy to begin with and having lived through the war, he bought himself this Corvair. And um, that's what he wa- That's how he saw himself driving. And in fact, the whole thing about driving and the way people are, people, I think people drive the way they feel, the way they are, you know, the way their personalities are or the way they imagine that they are inside or would like to be. Um, the car amplifies personality traits and fantasies blending with uh, metal and rubber and mechanical power. The car, I think, for a lot of people is a way of imagining, with all that power and speed, that they are invulnerable, right? You get in a car and uh, you can dispense with the usual rules, a lot of people do this, of etiquette and responsibility to other people. Just get out on the highway, man. People drive like they would never uh, behave in their own lives or how they secretly wish they could behave, right? You're in your own world. You're covered up with, like, armor, like you're... um, like on uh, like a knight on a steed covered with armor, and you're above common humanity. You you got your own. You're in your own battleship or your own rocket ship. Uh, you can do whatever you like. My father, my father was an interesting guy. He was a he was a very fast sort of reckless guy. He was um, very big and uh, carried a lot of anger around with him and liked to take a lot of risks. And he had all kinds of cars, but he had family responsibilities too. And he had all kinds of cars. And my father. Uh, had a kind, also a kind of a slightly suspect but exotic yen for the foreign. He was always traveling to foreign places, and the kind of cars he bought, um, he went to. He bought Lincolns, old Lincolns. He liked to buy used cars, but they were fancy. He bought an old forty-nine Lincoln once, which was as big as a battleship. Had rear, uh, <laughs> you couldn't turn it. Didn't have power steering. You would have to. Oh, my father was really strong, and it took all he could just to turn his car and park it at the curb the car and he had this very strange very sort of um, classy British car he used one called a Humber which of course doesn't exist anymore or I don't think it exists it was a, a, a small square black car that had red leather seats and mahogany dashboard and a German Blaupunkt radio fantastic radio um, and he sometimes my father would buy uh, but he was interested in he wished he had the money because he didn't have it he really wanted to get an XKE a Jaguar XKE I think it was called an XKE. That was like a big, strong thing to have. Uh, but, you know, uh, failing that, he, he would bought, you know, use Triumphs, convertibles, and things like that. He loved his, loved his cars. He was a, so he was a big, kind of thick, serious guy, my father. But behind the wheel of a sports car or a foreign car, I feel like he felt he could be the sort of the sporty, breezy guy he was inside. Not the big, thick, responsible, serious man 
that everybody treated him like on the outside and that he seemed to be. Um, inside, he could be that guy that nobody seemed to understand. And that happens with a lot of people, I think. A lot of people get in a car or they choose a car or they drive a car a certain way that, uh, that uh, they believe is the real them, that they can't express themselves out in their regular, regular lives. Um, I had an uncle who was rich. I had one rich uncle. He was a diamond merchant on 47th Street in New York City. Uncle Ed, he was a real prick. He was the real family son of a bitch. This guy was scared of, everybody was scared of this guy. He was, he was uh, you know, he came over on a boat like a lot of other people. He made his way, didn't have much education, but he made his way in the diamond business. It's the kind of guy who would wear really expensive suits, but flashy, and he'd have, carry around a roll in his pocket, like, you know, $5,000. Um, and he would just peel it off. He took me shopping once at Macy's, which was a big deal for somebody from my neighborhood. And he, he bought me some, bought me a couple of sport jackets. I was like 13 or 14 and other stuff. And he paid for it. And this is a big thing that people did in those days, in that generation, when they had finally made it. No checks, no credit, there were no credit cards. He just took this roll of 20s, 50s, and 100s out of his pocket. And he just, he just licked his thumb and he peeled it off. And so Uncle Ed, to show everybody that he was a successful guy, he bought a new Cadillac every single year. He would buy a new Cadillac every fall, flashier the better, whatever it was, you know, um, um, a Coupe de Ville or something. And he would then, he would uh, trade it in and get a brand new one. I had a thing with my Uncle Ed once. He um, offered to buy me a car. He was a very dictatorial guy. He offered to buy me a car when I graduated from high school, a, a new car, which was a big thing. But it had to be a Nash Rambler. You never heard of a Nash Rambler. Nash Rambler was the ultimate car for little old men and ladies. It was famous for being safe and nothing else. It was an ugly, awful little box of a car. And I turned it down like a moron. This is the story of my life. If I had any brains, I would have gotten the car and sold it, you know? What would he even know, right? But I didn't. I turned it down on a matter of principle, right? Anyhow. Um, and when I finally did get to drive, I mean, I was not, I was not the most responsible driver. Speaking of, speaking of people being the way they really are or indulging themselves. I was not a responsible driver. I did not stop sometimes for stop signs on, on empty streets. I drove too fast sometimes. And I was impatient. I was angry. I've always been impatient and angry. And it's not good when you're driving a car like that, right? I remember going back and forth to Hofstra to college in the summer of 66. Uh, I hadn't graduated because I needed one more course to get the complete 120 credits I needed. So I was going to summer school taking an English course. And my mother, my family got me as for a graduation present, a, a new Corvair, which was very sporty looking, also dangerous. It was maroon, had beige colored seats, beige colored seats. I remember that. And I drove in the middle of the day in the summer in these quiet back streets from the school out to Long Island, from the school out on Long Island to my house in Queens. You know, I would drive back and forth from Queens to Long Island to Hempstead. And um, it's about a 40-mile trip. And the streets were really, they were pretty empty then. And these quiet little suburban streets in the middle of the day, in the summer, this feeling of sort of endless um, lightness, right, and sun. And I wanted to, I was in a kind of an ecstatic trance in the car. Of course, the radio was on. The radio was always on. Couldn't have a car without the radio on when you were, when you were young. And, you know. and I felt when I was driving like I was floating uh, a couple of feet above the street, not really on the road at all. 
and I was brought up very short one day when a cop who was uh, lingering there, he pulled me over for going through a stop sign, which was, yes, dangerous. I mean, it could have hurt somebody. He gave me a ticket. And then about five days later, the same thing happened. Same cop caught me, and I had to go for, uh, I forget what, they took the, had some points on my license. They sent me to a class, a remedial driving class. Oh, man. I remember my first car, though. People who, who grew up with cars, a used car, a new car, you always remember your first car, right? I had uh, my father, the, you know, the big engineer, the, the guy who knew everything about uh, mechanical things. He, came, he went and helped me. This was a, a ritual between men and boys, and it was a bigger thing with me because my father really didn't have much to do with me at all. He was never around. So he went and helped me buy a used car when I could first uh, buy my first used car. And uh, we went to the used car a lot, and I bought a Studebaker Lark. It was, uh, <laughs> again, there's no more Studebakers. And um, um, I had ni- it cost me $900, and that was how, like having a couple of thousand dollars now. The car was black, and had red leather seats that somebody had installed, because it didn't come you know, standard with that. And it was a convertible. I had a convertible. Amazing. You know, the top did not go down electronically. You had to sort of unhook everything and push it down and then hook it in. Um, uh, it seemed like a risky car to me, you know, a convertible, too sporty. But my father, who loved risks and like things that were sort of exotic, he said, uh, no, you need to get this. I mean, I, don't th- I think he was getting it for himself, but um, maybe he knew me a little bit and knew I was too cautious and wanted me to stop being so, you know, so stick in the mud about everything. Uh, one reason I didn't want to get the car was because of the name. I mean, this is a, <laughs> a lark why would a, I mean, I was a, a boy, a teenage boy, and I was going to be driving a lark. This is, you understand, this is the era of Thunderbirds, Firebirds, Chargers, Mustangs, you know? I mean, who the fuck is going to get into a lark, a little Tweety Bird? I mean, a lark, it's embarrassing. It was like for sissies. But I, you know, I got it anyhow, because there was something appealing about it. I loved that car. It was my first, you know, like I said, my first great real possession. The first grown-up thing I had in the world. And um, I used to park it in my driveway, and I used to, um, used to, you know, clean it and wax it just like all the other guys did. And sometimes I would just go out and I would lean on the car. <laughs> I'd go out and just lean on it or look at it and just sit there with the car door closed and luxuriate in that little world I had. Um, and um, that's, you know, that's the way it was. I needed the car to drive from my house in Queens to Hofstra College. You know, like I say, it was a long way out in Hempstead. And, uh, of course, driving in the 60s, uh, in the 50s and 60s, was a big thing. I mean, um, you had, uh, you had uh, the radio. You could not drive without the radio on. It was, uh, in those days, ABC AM. It wasn't much of an FM station. Cousin Brucie, rock and roll, was an essential ingredient of driving a car. Absolutely essential ingredient. You got in, you turned the key in the ignition, you pulled into the street, onto the street, and you're not going, you know, you got going towards the highway there, and you turn on the music, and that's it. You were transformed. It was rock and roll, and you were flying high. All the usual rock and roll hits and some inane stuff. And, you know, it, but it, I guess it's a question of race or class. I mean, not everybody, you know, could afford a car. But if you were lower middle class, middle class, and you were white, and you were living out on, on the suburbs, that's it. You had the car, and you got in the car, and you uh, turned on the radio. And the radio was everything. That's what really took you off into magic carpet land. Maybelline, why can't 
man you remember get in the car and you turn on the radio like, people still do that all the time right you get in the car and it's, it's an essential part of driving being an american getting in the car driving that's it the radio in those days it was all uh, this is before fm stations even got used this is like in the late 50s and the early 60s and um you know like i say all the pop music and uh in that car that maybe that used car you bought with your own money driving on the highway uh, uh out there on your own Heading on the highway, looking for adventure, and the music—it was all—it <laughs> was all part of the experience. It was that—it um, was that—it's uh, like an American DNA. It's like in the American DNA, right? American DNA. This this daring, adventurous, uh, exploring the new lands, right? Even though I was just driving the same roads all the time. But once you get in a car, you had this feeling uh, that you inherited—this uh, manifest destiny feeling. That uh, there was new land, new frontiers. Wherever you were driving, you were the explorer, right? Uh, you headed on the highway, and that's it. On the road. On the road. Uh, there was this famous TV show from the 60s called um, Route 66. A lot of you might remember this. It's about, this Route 66 was this. Does this road still exist? I don't know. It was, went from Chicago uh, through the um, Middle West to the Southwest out to Los Angeles. And uh, it was this great show where these two guys, itinerant guys, and this is a lot of kind of a real American thing. They just put a lot of stuff in the car and drove and had experiences and adventures on the highway uh, into towns. And they went into towns or, you know, parts of cities. They had adventures. Uh, there was uh, some scrambling. Maybe there was a little uh, 
saving the day, a little heroics, or maybe they got jobs, and then they're packed up and they're on the road again. Great escape, the liberation from the nine to five, right, the predictable life. Um, in fact, once um, a long time ago before I settled down, which I never really did, uh, to a married life when I was around 25 uh, and a career, all of which, like I say, crashed because I was never suited for it anyhow. I took a big 60s, 70s trip across the country, me and my girlfriend, my wife-to-be. That's another whole story. But uh, it, was, uh, it, was, um, it was exciting, right? It was exciting. And then, of course, I heard country music, which I didn't know existed at all. I didn't know there was any such thing. But uh, that's it, the car, right? No limits, uh, you know, uh, no limits to, to what you could do. The country, the world, always a new frontier. And then it dawned on people in the late 60s and 70s, that uh, the great expanse was not so great or expansive anymore, right? Um, and then space, right? The final frontier, the USS Enterprise. And now it's the internet, cyberspace, uh, which is all jammed up now like a traffic jam on a highway. Um, when I go onto the net to a website, there are far too many things. It's all jammed up, jumping and moving and all going to the same place, Amazon, which owns everything. But... Um, well, these trips. I don't know if my wife and I finally are going to move to Maine. There's a tremendous amount of complications involved and responsibilities and things to consider. It may happen or it may not. But we move up there, we're going to have to buy a car. And um, I wouldn't mind, actually, never getting on another bus or train as long as I live. But having the car with all that trouble and expense, I don't know. Maybe next time this year we'll be driving on some country road up in Maine and uh, we'll turn on the radio and uh, get some good music as we roll along. How bad could that be, right? How bad could that be? All right, I'll see you next week. Get your kicks on the roof.